This, is, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but I have a question. How many people here like to go to Walt Disney World? Disney, yeah? Okay. So, you know what's really fun? If you go a lot, it's really fun to bring a kid. I mean, don't just pick one up without asking or anything like that. <laughs> but to watch, watch Disney, to see Disney through the eyes of a kid is really cool because you get to like rediscover everything again. And the reason I was thinking that is because, you know, we, we hired Pastor Scott and he moved his family here from Puyallup, Washington. Did I say that close, Jillian? Did I get, no, sorry. Puyallup, whatever. Anyway, but it's really fun to watch people from that part of the world experience South Florida for the first time because they're so excited because it's like sunny and warm. And nice. Anyway, that again has nothing to do with the sermon I was just thinking of. But I really, again, wanted to thank everybody. You know what the picture is? You know, Meisner, right? Isn't that beautiful? It is beautiful, isn't it? Well, thank you for being a part of our community here at Hammock Street. Um, you know, in this new world, you're a part. You're a part online. So thank you guys for joining us. Uh, those people who are watching. I like getting uh, emails and texts throughout the week from people who watch online. It's really cool to see where people are uh, watching from. Here on site, of course, we love having you guys. It's so cool to have everybody around. It's my favorite day of the week. I love when everybody comes here. So thank you for being here. We are uh, in our Advent series, and for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the holiday of Christmas, and we're trying to understand you know, what Christmas is all about, because we get a lot of confusing messages. But we know, because we've talked about it, that Christmas isn't about shopping, and it's not about sparkly lights, and it's not about decorated trees. It's not even about the nativity scene in the mall or in the town square, as it were. They're actually, in, in the park downtown in Boca, there's actually a nativity scene, which is really cool, but it's not about that. Th those things are good. There's nothing wrong with those things. But that's not what Christmas is about. That's not what's central to Christmas. Central to Christmas is... is, is any kids in the audience? What's central to Christmas? You know the answer. Somebody say Jesus, please. Okay, Jesus, good, okay, okay. Jesus, God the Son, God who became a man, God who became a man whose birth we celebrate because Jesus changed the course of human history. Even for people that don't believe in Jesus, he changed the course of human history. And, and you know, we have these sayings in modern times, keep Christ in Christmas, or Jesus is the reason for the season. By the way, I heard, a, I heard a professor say it once, Jesus is not actually the reason for the season. We are the reason for the season. Jesus came for us to take care of our sin problem. And that's what we're talking about at Hammock Street this Advent season. Remember, Advent's just the weeks leading up to Christmas, and that's what we're trying to do, is we're trying to learn exactly what it means to celebrate Christmas. And this is the third message in a five-part series, the series we're calling The Radical Gift of the Messiah. And we're doing this series because it's God's gift of the Messiah that gives Christmas its true meaning. And, and we've already looked at a couple of things. And if you've missed the sermons, go on our YouTube uh, channel or you can, go to, uh, you can go to our app. You can go on our website. Just pick up the sermon. You can watch it. If you want to watch it again, you can do that. But we've seen how God promised to rescue his people from sin and then... We saw how God identified for his people exactly whom the Messiah would be. And today we're going to explore God's plan, the plan that God revealed to his ancient people about the way, about how the Messiah would come into the world and redeem God's people. 
but I need you to understand something. God's plan wasn't the basic kind of X's and O's kind of thing. If you're a football fan, you understand, you know, the X's and O's, the O's are the offense, the X's are the defense, here's where the players are moving. That's very straightforward. It's very simple. That's what a football coach would do to show the players the game plan. But this is a radical plan. This is a radical plan that would change everything. And this radical plan unfolded over thousands and thousands of years, and it included countless people and and countless places. And God's plan required very clear hindsight and divine enlightenment to fully understand. So today we're going to take a look at God's plan, and along the way, we're going to answer these three questions about God's plan. What was the groundwork for God's radical plan? What were the details of God's radical plan? And how are we to understand God's radical plan? And when we're through today, it's my hope that we will all appreciate another reason that we celebrate Christmas. And as I was kind of finishing up my preparation and kind of going back through the message and and putting together the the PowerPoint, putting together the Bible verses that I put up on the screen, it kind of dawned upon me, there's an overwhelming amount of information today. And so I want you not to worry about it. I want you not to worry about trying to get all the scripture, remember all the scripture, any of that. I, I want you to be overwhelmed. Like the point is to see how overwhelming it is. I want you to see just how intense God's plan was and just how interwoven all the clues that God gave us as his people were throughout history, throughout the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. You'll see what I mean. So let's first pray and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for another beautiful day. Thank you for sunny South Florida. Thank you for the community that you're building here on site and online here at Hammock Street Church. Thank you for raising up a group of people who understand, who understand who you are, whose we are, to whom we belong, and to understand what it is that we're doing here, that we're sent here as God's ambassadors to represent God among a world that is so sorely in need. So God, as we dig through the scripture this morning, we ask that you would keep our heart and mind open so that we can learn all that we can, so we can draw closer to you. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start off by looking at the Jewish practice that was really the precursor, the thing that came before God's radical plan. But before we dig real deep, I want you to get a feel for what God's people were experiencing during the many, many years that this plan was unfolding. It took a long time to unfold. Now, as an integral, central part of their faith, God's ancient people were well aware, they knew that God had promised to send them a savior, to send them a Moshiach, a Messiah. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Judaism is a messianic religion. Now, it's interesting because now there's a movement called Messianic Judaism, and that's something different. It's really Christianity, but it's, it's something different. And if you ask a lot of Jewish people around town, and we do have a lot of Jewish people around town, if you ask a lot, they're going to go, well, eh, we really don't believe in Messiah and all that. That's not biblically accurate. Biblically, Judaism is a Messianic religion. And back then, most of God's people, I can't say all, because of course, I'm sure there were some that didn't, but most understood the attributes of the coming Messiah. In other words, Most people knew that this Messiah would occupy three offices, prophet, priest, and king, okay? 
we talked about that. Then we talked about the fact that most people would know that the Messiah came from a particular family or a particular tribe. He came from the tribe of Judah. And the Jews knew where this Messiah would be born. He would be born in Bethlehem. Remember that? But notwithstanding their awareness of his attributes and his birthplace, very few people were aware of how or the manner in which the Messiah would come into the world. Or were they aware of the way in which he would take care of man's sin problem? So they didn't understand how he's going to get here and what he's going to do. That's what I'm referring to when I say the radical plan. Now, I want you to check this out. It's kind of interesting. Even though God did give them all the clues they would ever need for his plan to be revealed, he, all the clues were there. But very few of God's people could actually see how God was going to carry out his plan. Don't, don't miss that. Even though over the course of the centuries, God was giving his people plenty of clues as to his plan for their salvation, they still didn't know what he was up to. We talk about the disciples a lot and how Jesus was with them for three years and he was explaining things to them and they were just clueless the whole time. They're like, what, what is he going to do? God's been giving his people clues for a very long time. Now, that sounds confusing. I totally get that. All right, wait a minute. God gave his people clues. His people knew there was a Messiah coming, but they didn't understand. Huh? How come? It's confusing. And I was very confused too, but it helped me to think of it like this. So think of it this way. Have you ever watched a movie with a surprise ending? There's some really great surprise ending movies that have been made over the years. One of my favorites is this movie. It's a movie called The Sixth Sense. Has anyone seen that? Everyone seen that? Anyone hasn't seen The Sixth Sense? Okay, there's still a few. Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about it. It's the story of a child psychologist, Dr. Malcolm Crow, played by Bruce Willis with hair, when Bruce Willis had hair. And the story is he failed to diagnose a young boy's problem, which caused that young boy to suffer for the rest of his life because of the doctor's failure. So the movie chronicles Dr. Crow's efforts to help another child in a similar situation so that Dr. Crow could clear his conscience. So he was really feeling guilty because the one boy's kind of his life was messed up, so he worked with another person to try to help him better. Now, The Sixth Sense has one of the most incredible surprise endings you will ever see, and I'm not going to spoil it for you. I was going to, but I'm not going to. Even though you've had 22 years to watch the movie. So... If you've chosen not to, it's kind of on you, but I'm not going to do that because it's that great a movie. But suffice it to say, there is absolutely no way to know at the beginning of the movie, throughout the movie, what's really going to happen until you know how the movie ends. You only understand the movie when you understand how the movie ends. It's like the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Right? So we, we live prospectively, but we understand what we've done retrospectively. We, we have to go through it, and then we look back, and we go, oh, that's where the expression being over the hill comes from, for those of us who are over the hill. Because we've already crested, and now we get to look back up the hill and go, oh, yeah, I see it now. But you don't see it when you're climbing. And it's the same with God's radical plan, the plan we celebrate on Christmas. It can only be fully understood when God's people knew how it would end, and then look back to see the clues that pointed to the end all along the way. 
So that's kind of what we're gonna look at today. So I'm gonna show you what I mean. Here's our first question. What was the groundwork for God's radical plan? So to begin, we need to see how God's people understood that sin led to death, all right? So Genesis chapter three, first book of the Old Testament, first book of the Bible, first book of the law, the Torah. In Genesis three, we saw how sin entered the world and we saw how God punished his people for their sin by keeping them from the tree of life and banishing them from the garden. Remember how we did that? Good. Last week, we looked at Exodus 32. Exodus 32, verse 33 says, whoever has sinned against me, this is God, I will blot out of my book. So we saw that after God's people had sinned, God said, I'm gonna blot you out of my book. And the prophet Ezekiel came along later and he said this in Ezekiel 18, four, the one who sins is the one who will die. So from that, we can see what? Sin leads to death, okay? That's how that goes. Well, the next thing we learn is that blood covers sin. You see, God's people knew that where there's sin, there needs to be blood to pay for it. This has been a rule for God's people from the very beginning. See, almost immediately after the fall of man, when sin entered the world, remember in the Garden of Eden back there in Genesis chapter three, God instituted the practice of sacrifice. Here's how that went down. Genesis 3.1, Satan tempts the woman, tempts man. Genesis chapter three, verse six, man and woman acting on the temptation eat the forbidden fruit. Genesis 3.7, sin and shame enter the world. Genesis 3.8, God shows up. This is when we have our theophany, our Christophany of God walking around in the garden in the cool of the day. God enters the world. Genesis 3.14 and then 16 through 19, God hands down the curse, right? The snake crawls on its belly. In pain shall you bring forth life, you give birth. Men should toil and sweat of their brow and all that sort of stuff. And then Genesis 3.15, we learn about the Messiah's rescue. The seed of the woman would come to crush the head of Satan. So now take a look at what happens next. All right, here we go. So this is still Genesis 3, now in verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. All right, so what happened here? Well, no sooner had God's creation fallen, no sooner had sin and death entered the world, God made garments of skin for man and woman. How do you think God made garments of skin? He killed some animals to do so, right? He shed the blood of animals. By the way, that makes God the first one in the Bible to shed the blood of animals. Look at that. So then God uses their skin, the animal skin, to cover the result of the sin committed by man and woman. And in that act, we get our first clue about what the Messiah would do for us. But at this point, come on, you can't see what's coming. God's people were... There were clues. They could say, okay, that may be something, but I don't know. But the pattern continues. Now we move on in Genesis to Genesis 4. Genesis 4, Adam and Eve have had two sons. Remember their names? Trent and Dylan. No, Cain and Abel. He was not born this year. So Cain and Abel, all right? So Genesis 4, 4. And Abel brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. By the way, what's that? Animals, animal fat, okay? Firstborn of his flock, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. Remember the story very briefly? Cain and Abel are making offerings to God and God only approved 
one of the offerings. So now which of the offerings was acceptable to God, the fruit from Cain or the blood and the fat from Abel? Well, in 2021, our 21st century sensibilities might answer, we might want to answer, well, fruit, obviously, because, you know, that's more noble. But God's answer was not fruit. God's answer was the blood. Okay, so now we move on to Genesis 8. God saves Noah and his family using the ark. You might remember the story. So when Noah leaves the ark, what's the first thing Noah does? Verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and the clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings. In other words, he killed those animals. He shed their blood for God. So when Noah left the ark, on the altar, he offered the blood of clean animals, clean beasts and clean birds. In order to make a fresh start for the world, under Noah, God required a blood sacrifice. All right, we go on to Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, Abraham goes to sacrifice his son, Isaac. But in love, God intervenes and he spares the boy by arranging it so that, look at this, this is cool, Genesis 22, 13. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. All right. So we're getting there. Now, years later, Egypt is about to face the wrath of God through the 10th plague, but God spared his people. How did he spare his people? He required a blood sacrifice, Exodus 12. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I, this is God speaking, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Hence the name Passover. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So it was the blood of the Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb that saved God's people from death. Now, as a result of all of these events, the blood sacrifice became an integral part of the Jewish religious practice. We can read about this in Exodus chapter 30, verse 10. I told you there's a lot of scripture here, right? Once a year, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. God required a blood sacrifice every single year so the people could atone for their sin. By the way, when you think of the word atone, think of it, at, break it up, it's at one. So that's what you're trying to do is you're trying to become at one again with God. It's how you come back to be with God. You atone for your sin, which puts you back in line with God. Every year there was a blood sacrifice. Now watch this. The Hebrew word for atonement is the word kippur. Kippur actually means to cover over. That's where the holiday Yom Kippur gets its name. Yom Kippur, Yom is day, Kippur is atonement. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. By the way, this is just a quick detour because I think this is kind of cool. I get asked this all the time. If Christianity is indeed the continuation and the culmination of Judaism, why don't Christians celebrate the Jewish holidays, particularly the Jewish high holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Rosh means head, Hashanah means of the year, so Jewish New Year, and Yom Kippur. You ever think about that question? It's a good question. and has an easy answer. You see, Rosh Hashanah begins a 10-day period known in Jewish circles as the high holidays, Yamin Noraim is how you say it in Hebrew, 
And it's a time of penitence and it's a time of prayer. So you get 10 days of, of asking God for forgiveness and praying. It ends on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And worldwide, Jews take this 10-day period to repent of their sins and ask God for forgiveness. So as Christians, we repent of our sins as we commit them, or at least we we're supposed to. And then God forgives us right there on the spot. But Jewish practices, you save them up and once a year. You ask God, you just bring the whole basket there and you go, okay, here, this is what I've done. Forgive me, Okay. Now, Jewish tradition holds that on Rosh Hashanah, the destiny of all mankind is recorded by God in his book of life. Scripture consistently mentions this book of life. We just talked about it back there in Exodus 32. The ancient Hebrews believe, and the modern Jews to some degree still believe, that after Yom Kippur, the book of life is now closed and sealed for the coming year. And that everybody who, who had repented of their sins by the time the book is closed is granted a good and happy new year. Now, under the Old Testament practice of sacrifice, the Hebrew people were required to continue this sacrifice for atonement every single year. And they believed that it was the blood of the animals that came along and temporarily covered over their sins. So you're starting to see a bit of the picture come into Come into focus here. All right, so we're going to end this section in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Now, Leviticus, this is the third book of the Torah, third book of the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is just another word for Torah, okay? Pentagram, Pentagon, you know what Pentagon is? A five-sided building in Washington. So Penta is five. Pentateuch, five books of the Bible. First five books are the Torah or the law. So Leviticus is the third book of the Pentateuch. It contains the laws relating to the priests and the Levites, which is why it's Leviticus. You see the Levite in there. So the theme of Leviticus pertains to the way that God will work his covenant with Israel that he set out in Genesis and then Exodus. So in Leviticus 17, we read this. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar, it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So Leviticus gives us this summation of the importance of blood to God. Life is in the blood and atonement comes through the blood. So the concept of covering over sin and becoming right with God through the shedding of blood was a concept that was very familiar with the ancient Hebrews. Now, all of this points to the fact that the groundwork for God's plan of redemption had been laid. Here's how it goes. Sin brings death. Blood covers sin. Blood gives life. All right? That's our background. Now, let's see how God began to reveal this plan to his people, which takes us to our second point. What are the details of God's radical plan? So God's radical plan would be different than anything that they had experienced up until that point. Because the Jews had been practicing the sacrifice of animals for thousands of years. So after you do something for a few thousand years, it becomes part of your routine, don't you think? Yeah, right? So if every night before you go to bed, you sacrifice an animal and you do it for, you know, 10 years and then 20 years and 100 years and then 1,000 years, I mean, this is what you do, right? And, and indeed, the, the Jewish people took their identity from this practice. And as a result of all that, they were not interested in changing anything which makes sense, right? I mean, we do the same thing. Our culture is much, much newer than their culture was, but there are a lot of things that we call customs and traditions that we will never change. 
Beth and I were talking about it this morning. There's so many people this time of year who have all these Christmas customs and they don't even know why they do them, but they do them because it's always been that way and why would I ever change that? So we, all, we, we know how this works. We are reluctant to change our cultures. They're definitely reluctant to change their much, much older culture. But God had given the people clues throughout their history indicating that it was his plan the entire time, all along. It was his plan that this practice of animal sacrifice is just temporary. It's going to end one of these days. And at Christmas, we celebrate the fact that from the very beginning, God's plan included the arrival of a savior who would forever alter the world. So we just read in Genesis 22, 13 this, Abraham looked up from a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. We just read that he went, took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And in this verse, we see something important. We see that God spared Abraham's son by providing a substitute sacrifice for Isaac's life. That is a huge clue as to what was about to take place in the redemptive future of the Jewish people. Now, notice that the ram was offered in place of Isaac, making this the first instance of a substitutionary sacrifice that God would offer for his people. And then in Exodus 12, verse 13, we read this. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. We saw that too. We saw the blood of the lamb, the perfect and spotless lamb, the paschal lamb, would serve as a sacrifice, a substitute sacrifice to protect sinful man from death. Okay, that's another huge clue. The blood of the Messiah who would come and who would stand between sinful man and a perfect God would be required. But it wasn't until about 750 years before Jesus' birth, which is well after Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So the first five books of the Bible, roughly speaking, were written about 14, 1,500 years before Jesus. This is a long time. 750 years before Jesus, so roughly 750 years after Moses, the prophet Isaiah comes along, and God gives the prophet Isaiah the clearest picture of his plan for the salvation of his people. So in the 8th century BC, the prophet Isaiah prophesied how God would implement his radical plan and provide the final sacrifice that would replace the animal sacrifices of the human people and give them eternal favor with God. All right, so now we're going to go a little bit through the prophet Isaiah. So in Isaiah 7, we see how the Messiah, how the Savior would arrive. His birth would be different than any other birth that there had ever been. Isaiah 7, 14. Some of these you will recognize because at Christmas, these are the verses we look at, okay? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, by the way, if you've ever done any apologetics and you hear about the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word that they use here is the word Alma. And does Alma mean virgin? Well, there's actually another word that also means virgin. The word is Betulah. Betula literally means virgin. Alma also means virgin. It means a young, undefiled maiden who's never known a man. Same exact thing. Don't buy into it. So the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. A chaste, unmarried woman would give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. 
and Emmanuel's status, God is with us status, would be different than anyone born before. We go to Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And not only that, his death would be different than anyone who had been born before. We go to Isaiah 53, all right? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now, before we go on, I want you to note one thing. At the time this was written, crucifixion did not exist as a punishment in the world. It would be 200 more years before the Persians would come up with this great idea of crucifixion. That was sarcasm. Don't write me, okay? Now, Verse six, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him, this Messiah, the iniquity of us all. This Messiah would be wounded for his people and punished for his people and his people would be healed by what he did. Isaiah 53, eight, he was cut off from the land of the living, he died. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. We go on, though he had done no violence, nor there was there any deceit in his mouth. He hadn't done anything wrong, in other words. Yet, verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. He'd done nothing wrong, and he was killed. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he, the Messiah, will see his offspring, anybody who follows him, and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. He's going to come back from the dead. You just read in the previous verse, he's going to die. Now you're reading that he's going to come back from the dead. After paying the penalty for the sin of his people, he comes back from the dead. We continue in verse 11. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant, the Messiah, will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession. He stood in between punishment and God for their transgressions, for the transgressors. So the Messiah would come and pay the penalty for the sinners. So this whole plan was laid out by the prophet Isaiah 750 years before Jesus would even be born. But even though God's people believed God's promise that a Savior was coming, they didn't know that Isaiah's prophecy provided all the details they ever needed to know what to expect, to know how the world would change. It wasn't until after the Messiah's arrival 2,000 years ago that the picture comes into focus, which takes us to our third point. How do we understand this? How do we understand God's radical plan? Now, we have the New Testament, the Christian Bible, and it gives us the benefit of hindsight. That's what we were talking about when we started, the benefit of looking back and going, Oh, now I see it, right? There it is. And the New Testament records how Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's prophecies. Now, as Matthew looked back at the prophecy in Isaiah 7.14, remember, all, all the characters, let's say, in the New Testament, their Bible was the Old Testament, okay? In fact, their Bible was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, okay, called the Septuagint. So this is what God revealed to Matthew. So look at this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. 
The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And then he translates it, which means God is with us. How do we know that, that, that Isaiah's passage was in Matthew's mind? Well, it's really clear. Like He almost quotes it word for word. He cites it and makes reference to it in, all over the place. It's, it's referenced all further in, in Matthew's writing and in the other gospel writings. In Matthew 1.23, he quotes Isaiah 7.14. In Matthew 4.15, he quotes Isaiah 9-1. through 1. This means that, that Matthew wasn't doing this in a bubble. He wasn't doing this in a silo. He wasn't looking at Isaiah 7.14 in isolation. Matthew got it. He was looking at Isaiah's prophecy in the larger context of the messianic prophecies that are all throughout Isaiah. Luke also refers back. Paul also refers back. They both tell us that Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's prophecies of being both human and divine and coming to the world to bring peace. And as we just saw, the prophecies set forth in Isaiah 53 told us how Jesus carries our sorrows, how Jesus was punished by God, how he died, and how he rose from the dead. I mean, could it be more clear? Could it? What was due to us because of our sinfulness, our punishment, that's what fell upon Jesus. He was our substitution. Paul says it to the church in Corinth in his second letter in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Then Paul, in his letter to the believers in Rome, said it this way in Romans 4. He, this is Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Okay? Clearly, Jesus was our substitute and he was made sin on our behalf. So just as the ram in that Genesis 22 story was offered as a substitute for Isaac, Jesus became sin on our behalf. Jesus was our substitute. He bore our griefs. He carried out our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus took our place and bore our sins in his body on that cross and paid the penalty for our sin. John writes in 1 John 4, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's why I said we are the reason for the season. God loved us so much that he sent his son to us to save us from our sin. Paul wrote to the believers in Rome in Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The whole atoning work of Jesus was a legal action, a legal transaction where Jesus substituted himself for sinners and paid the legal requirement of the punishment of sin, which is death. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, my old pastor used to say, this is the place where the gospel is written most clearly in the scripture, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. All right, one last tranche of scripture. The writer of Hebrews summed up for his ancient people, Hebrew people, whose ancient practices had been radically altered. He sums up, how their God had fulfilled the law on their behalf. And the writer of Hebrews gives us sort of the final understanding of God's plan. So we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 10. 
For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, that's the animal sacrifice we talked about, make perfect those who draw near. In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Verse four, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. Verse six, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, or, with the first in order to establish the second. Verse 10, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. That's why we don't sacrifice anymore. And there's another reason, which I'll tell you in a minute. One time, it's all taken care of. It was the final sacrifice. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But one more time, if you missed it, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, it's really interesting, and this is kind of, a, kind of an insert here. The sacrificial system in the temple in Jerusalem continued until what year? 70 AD, okay? 70 AD. It's believed that Jesus was crucified and resurrected roughly 33, 35 AD. So somewhere 35 years later, which for those of us who are a little bit older, a few more miles on us, 35 years isn't that long ago, okay? If you're young, you think it's a really long time. When you're older, it's not very long at all. So 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. They could not offer animal sacrifices if they wanted to. The temple was destroyed. It was over, but it wasn't necessary anymore because 35 years before the final sacrifice took place. God's plan given to his ancient people that he would send a savior who would take away the sins of the world was always there. It was always in the Old Testament. It's always in the scripture. And today we know that God has carried out his plan. Our sins can be forgiven and we can have a relationship with God once we've admitted that we're all sinners, that we're totally incapable of living the perfect life that we would need to live to make ourselves acceptable to God on our own power. If we admit that and believe that Jesus lived the life that we just talked about, he lived the life for us and he died on the cross paying for our sins. He was buried, he rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven where he sits at God's right hand. And if we commit our lives to God through that Jesus, through this Messiah, then we can enjoy God's gift of eternal life on this side of heaven and beyond. And that's what Christmas is all about. We've now seen how the movie ends. We have all the information we need to begin a relationship with God, to begin a relationship with the God who loves us enough to send his only son for us. That's what we celebrate on Christmas, the arrival of that son with the benefit of hindsight and with the benefit of this new testament, this new covenant from God. We've devoted our lives to God's Messiah, and we've signed on to serve as his ambassadors. Think about an ambassador. So if somebody gets sent here, so the, the United Kingdom has an embassy, and I think it's in, in Washington, D.C. I think they actually have a few branches elsewhere, and they send an English person from England to the United States to live in the United States, to shop in the United States, to drive around in the United States. 
but he's representing England. He's always from England. He's always an Englishman. He's bound by England's laws. He is a member of the English community, but he's here as an ambassador to represent his country to all of us Americans. That's what we are. We are citizens of heaven. Our king is God. Our king is Jesus. And we stand here in our time and place representing him to everyone around us. Yes, we're Americans. Yes, we're Colombians. Yes, we're Puerto Ricans. Yes, we're all of these things, but we are members of the kingdom of God. And that's who we are. And we're ambassadors. And our job is to show the lost around us how God would have us live, the way that God has designed us to live. So this Christmas, let's get excited about that. Let's get excited about the way that God's going to use us to lead other people to him. And then let's make ourselves all about looking for those opportunities. Keep your eyes open. You'll see them every single day. Let's look for those opportunities as we prepare ourselves for the radical gift of the Messiah. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for allowing us to look back and see just how clear it is. Just how clear it is that you've laid out a plan for us from the beginning of time where you would have us come into this world and be connected to you through your grace and your mercy and through your provision of your son. So God, as we continue heading into this Christmas season, allow us to be looking for others who need to know that connection, who need to know your love, who, whose lives will be transformed by your power. God, we're humbled that you would call us. We're thankful that you use us. So God, allow us to be open to your call. In Jesus' name, amen.